0: Thank you so much for joining us tonight. I'm very excited. This is a special live taping of Manifesto, a podcast done with Fairfield University's Quick Center as a part of the Fairfield University Master's of Fine Arts Program's Inspired Writers Series. The Fairfield University Master's Fine Arts Program seeks to support, sustain, and extend the Jesuit ideal of developing the writer as a whole person within a community committed to justice, honest expression, and beauty. It's a wonderful community, and I'm sure we have some of the writers uh, out there uh, right now. Uh, Hey, folks. uh, And I will, uh, with that, kick it to Jake to start the podcast slash show.
1: Yes, yes. Well, to all the writers, welcome. Welcome. To Manifesto, a podcast, your regular visit to the archives of vanity, where men and women who stop making myths turn to issuing proclamations, your guides for this journey, our crack producers, Alex Brooklyn and Adam Kamara of Racket Media, my co-host Phil Cly, author of the novel Missionaries, our excellent and distinguished guest today, Vincent Cunningham, theater critic for The New Yorker, and myself. Jake Siegel the knocker off of tall hats may you continue to be a person and thank right.
0: you yeah thank
1: you Fairfield for hosting us we are uh we're looking forward Phil what are we talking about
0: yeah so our manifesto for today is pope francis's Fratelli Tutti, and um the uh the art uh is going to be um Fair Fairview by uh, Jackie sibley Drury. Uh the play that uh we're very lucky uh, to have a, a distinguished theater critic with us to discuss, as well as somebody who has written, I think, very brilliantly about Pope Francis's Fratelli Tutti. So uh Vincent, welcome, welcome to the uh welcome to the uh the podcast. Um Thanks for having me. I was I was wondering if you could just read the opening paragraph of the essay that you wrote for Wheel magazine on Fertility for us. because so I think that would set us up very nicely.
2: Absolutely. And thank you again for having me. Um, the essay is called many and one. And here is the first paragraph. I'm always moved by those moments when a part of the mass angles, my vision just so suddenly I can hold in mind all at once, deep specifics and vast abstractions. Blessing the wine, the priest says, fruit of the vine and work of human hands. And I ground that image in a particular time and place, envisioning a bunch of dusty grapes and a pair of brown hands, a woman in her work. Almost as quickly, though, I'm thinking about the rain that fed the vine. And then I'm off contemplating the tangled evolutionary process and network of intimacies that produced the picker. Before long, I'm in the stars. That's what makes up the body. Contingency on one hand and the cosmos on the other. Uh, I'm sure that some of you heard a fire truck in the background of that purposeful scoring.
1: Don't worry about (laughs) it. Contingency on one hand, you
0: know? (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) indeed, indeed. Um, Yeah, and you go on to say that, you know, this has been a a continuing theme of Pope Francis to this tension. Well, is is it a tension between the universal and the local, but um, but you point out also a gift, right?
2: Absolutely, yeah. He What he does really well is outline what looks like a problem. And, 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 and this really, in within Fratelli Tutti, for those who haven't read it yet, if you wanna find out his uh, vision of politics and how it depends on these two poles, the action really is in chapters four and five. But he sets up what looks like a problem, right? Like, we don't want to dissolve into a featureless, abstract, uh, overly smug sort of cosmopolitanism that never thinks uh, for a moment about places and the people that come from those places, the traditions that are indigenous to those places, right? The specificity that makes us, in the end, precisely human beings. But we also don't want to fall into a pinched, um, call it hyper nationalism, call it hyper populism, whatever you, whatever Adjective that he want to use for it, but we don't want to fall into a pinched nativism that is not Moving ultimately toward a horizon that makes us um, Something like humanists something like people who are yes specific part of our own contingent corners of the world but um, Aware that this very contingency makes us one with other people, right? Um, that is a problem. He never s- tries to say that it's not attention. Um, Requires however a kind of creative balance something that you have to think through in order to
0: achieve As you say the the, the gift of it Right and and the you know for the, It's interesting uh, you you might be able to hear uh, my baby uh, In the background <laughs> who is supposed to be asleep, but uh, more contingency for you. Yeah, um uh, He starts with uh, Think about St. Francis and uh, meeting with the Sultan of Egypt, unconcerned uh, for the hardship and dangers involved, Francis went to meet the Sultan with the same attitude he instilled in his disciples. If they found themselves among the Saracens and other non-believers without renouncing their own identity, they were not to engage in arguments or disputes, but to be subject to every human creature for God's sake. And he writes, in the world of that time, bristling with watchtowers and defensive walls, cities were a theater of brutal wars between powerful families, even as poverty was spreading through the countryside. Yet there Francis was able to welcome true peace into his heart and free himself of the desire to wield power over mm. others. I I was I mean I I was struck and moved at many points by Vertellituti. And in, in, in some ways it's 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 too broad um, to get into it. But that sort of insistence on a an openness to engagement while evaluation while valuing the kind of the rooted and the local seemed um very powerful to me, and it's a constant thread and and one of the things that um he's always cautious of is sort of ways in which <laughs> either the attachment to the local can go awry. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, or the universal and so there's a sort of um you know there's like demagogic populism on one hand and then the sort of dogma of neoliberal faith uh, (laughs) on the other right um and what he has um against this is this notion of um a people right and um precisely uh, which, he, which he refers to as something n- not mystical, um, but mythic, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think in, in many ways that, that sense of like, respecting what it is to be, you know, respecting peoples, right? Um, as in their fluidity and openness, which is an essential component of their ability to survive and thrive. Because as soon as they start kind of closing themselves off, becomes a sort of museum of of nostalgia, right, Um, is, seems to be a kind of core concern for him for thinking through other issues about, you know, how do we deal with globalism and what it does um, to local cultures and peoples and to the individual who gets sort of kind of just faced with, uh, you know, the kind of massive global forces indifferent to him on the one hand and a kind of atomized responsibility on the other um and i found it really powerful jake what was your um for the the non-catholic reader of fertility what what in that stood out to you I and mean, it, it does seem similar to a lot of ideas that we've been throwing around uh over the past couple of years
1: it's similar to ideas that we've been throwing around in a humanistic context you know it obviously uh, Reminded me of parallel conversations that we've had on a number of of occasions where it's this question of um, how do you prevent the reciprocal communal obligations that give life meaning from being effaced or uh, from being, you know, kind of um, paved over by these um, enormous uh bureaucratic structures whether you call that neoliberalism or, or something else uh, while at the same time um, keeping a, a kind of ideal of universalism uh, you know humanistic universalism um, and the thing you know the people's the the the, the pope's resolution of the the kind of the people of the union you know, i mean this is to me very familiar as a jew because it's the, the idea of the jewish people is it's it's a covenantal community whose um, covenantal bond with god and whose communal relations are there but that is what constitutes the form of the universalism right that the universalism of the the Hebrews, uh, the the Jewish people is not a a conquering universalism. It's a, like a self-contained covenantal universalism. And so the, the, there is no uh, real ambition towards an earthly uh, universal kingdom. It's the perfection of the, the communal relations is what constitutes that. And and, you know, it's, it's not just uh, universal in the sense of um, global, right? I, I think that becomes uh, synonymous sometimes in this conversation. You talk about universalism and what you mean really is not actually the universe. You mean... Um, the earth but but this is also universal in the sense that the perfection of the or the attempt at the perfection of the communal relations is transcendent not merely um, not merely applicable to all people alive at a given moment but what constitutes transcendence and and the connection to the sublime
0: right there's a there's a Just to go back to Vincent's essay on this, (laughs) it's just very nice. Um, We can only obtain the universe by way of the local street. Francis's formula sounds a bit like the logic of the incarnation with its insistence that in order to save the entire world, God needed to become a certain child in a certain country born to a mother whose name we claim to know. He ate real food, local to his hard-pressed corner of the world, and seems to have had special favorites among his friends. If Nazareth had had a soccer club, Christ might have been a regular in the stands rooting for it. Um. Yeah.
2: Um, I mean, and, and it's, it's funny that that's it on, on sometimes which kind of can seem sentimental to me or, or something. But, you know, when I was a kid, I had a real trouble with um, John walking around, for example, calling himself the beloved disciple, you know, the idea that Christ, <laughs> was, no, no, no. I'm the one that Jesus like really loved um, that like, <laughs> Among, even among the 12 that there was a special relation between one and one, you know, it it has implications for all of us. It has implications for, yes, I can be partial to my people and to my place. And I, I love what you said, Jake, about the sort of um, the transcendent, my not just in the sublime, not just my people and my place at this moment, but my people and my place as a product of history. You know, the one. This is not just an anthropology, but for Francis, this is the result of a theology that you know Christianity is a is a is a religion that lives in history and that moves through history, and part of its sweep is specifically historical. That you know, um, interpreting the signs of the times is an important part of. Um, Francis's theology, you know, um, and, and, and of course this isn't just a Christian idea. One of my favorite books is Abraham Joshua Heschel's book about the Sabbath. Um, and he says, you know, a building and architecture in time is the point of the Sabbath. Yes, we do our work in space, but part of holiness, part of God's language and his presence to us is some relationship to time, um, to history. And that's how we, um, how we experience. And so that dimensionality of yes, yes, place. And yes, our, our space in the world and our communities, but also again, this issue of the, of a journey through history with And of course that journey has to have a horizon. And I think that's where this transcendence comes in. We're all kind of journeying together toward a mutual horizon. Um, It's a beautiful image that he's able to, to plant. All the way through, you know, and in my head,
1: the the test for um, the universalizing principle is: as you approach the horizon, does it become universal? Maybe that's overly abstract, but what I mean by that is, you know, I always keep in mind, like there's a the, the sweep of the the historical sweep that Camus lays out in the Rebel. Um, you know, is this progression from uh, the overthrow of kings to the overthrow of God, to the erection, you know, man's attempt to erect himself as a new God. Through it all, he posits this distinction between rebellion and revolt, right? And basically he always maintains this idea that the principle of... Uh, rebellion, if it can't be universalized, becomes a license to tyranny. And that it's over and over again. What happens is that the, the impulse that justifies the initial rebellion, once the rebel refuses to universalize it, uh, it, it becomes the means by which they subjugate the people around them. That to like to to locate that doesn't work, I don't think, on a local time horizon, right? So you don't need to be able to universalize um, necessarily every habit, every custom, every, you know, moral injunction in your immediate setting. But if you imagine those things, like, on a long enough time horizon, if they can't be universalized, then you're in trouble. I I don't know, maybe that doesn't... uh, I can't tell if that makes sense or not, but it's, it makes sense in my head.
2: It, it makes a lot of sense, but then, but you know, what needs to happen if you think in that way is to really accept a really hard teaching, which is that um, actions have no content in themselves and that, that the intention behind, this is like a, a, a thing of you always have to be thinking. He you, is really laying a heavy burden on you that your rebellion your motion toward freedom, your um, even living among yourselves, has to be full of a certain kind con- content, um, right?
1: right. A deliberateness, right?
2: A deliberation that is intellectual and also moral, um, and that's that's hard, you know. Um, and I, there's a way to sort of um, fall into a spirituality about that, I guess. But um, it it makes action very freighted, you know. Um, in a way that I mean, and this is how you get the sense of a, a world of actions that are deeply meaningful. You know, this is the the beginning of literature, I guess. But
0: yeah, that that leads you to some pretty uh, tough places. Yeah, and and the you know the, the the sort of currents going against that. I mean, he 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 very specifically targets. I mean, he he sees sort of limits limits in kind of basic liberal thought right I, I mean not liberal as in political liberal necessarily but um you know he talks about the sort of debates between freedom and equality and individualism and posits you know um fraternity as a goal and with the image of, of you know the good samaritan right it's the person who's actually being a neighbor because um you know freedom can become uh can be, can become nothing more than a condition for living as we will um completely free to choose to whom or what we will belong, or simply to exploit, um, or in the case of equality, an abstract plot proclamation. And he says, the concept of a people, which naturally entails a positive view of community and cultural bonds, is usually rejected by individualistic liberal approaches, which view society as merely the sum of coexisting interests. One speaks of respect for freedom, but without roots in a shared narrative, in certain contexts, those who defend the rights of the most vulnerable mem- members of society tend to be criticized as populist uh populists and and then so th- th- there's there's that as sort of a political uh issue and then he has a sort of um this kind of economic universalism. Uh, and he says, opening up to, to the world and this expression has been co-opted by the economic and financial sector and is now used exclusively of openness to foreign interests or the freedom of economic powers to invest without obstacles or complications in all countries. Local conflicts and disregard for the common good are exploited by the global community in order to impose a single cultural model. This culture unifies the world, but divides person- Persons and nations. For society becomes ever more globalized, it makes us neighbors, but does not make us brothers. Right? Um, just
1: for context, so this came out in October 2020, right? Yeah. So this is very recent. Uh, I think he says he started writing it before the pandemic, but I added something um, yeah. just to situate listeners in terms mm-hmm. of when this was coming out.
2: Yeah, he'd given an address in Abu Dhabi along some of these lines that you can see developing into this. And then the, as you say, the pandemic starts and he has those beautiful moments towards the beginning of the pandemic, the great Orbi and Orbi speech and sort of presentation that he made, highly symbolic. And you see some of that in here too. So it's definitely got
0: those two streams. Yeah, and that sort of universalism that disregards it treats everybody as sort of an aggregation of individuals, right? But disregards, you know, the way in which we, <laughs> who we are is a function of our local attachments, right? You know, and that's, I think, you know, we sort of have this abstract, this idea that like true morality would be a kind of abstract, utterly disengaged morality. And and of course, you know, <laughs> the Christ in the gospels has favorites, as you mentioned, right? Has like, you know, his first miracle, his mother is like, can you do something? He's like, it's not my time. I'm not supposed to do it. And she's like, yeah, but I'm your mom, you know? <laughs> <Yeah>. like, <laughs> and then he has to do it, right? He has to make the wine. Um, and and I love that, right? Um so yeah. And I love that the first miracle, by the way, is something sensual, like a sensual delight. It's just like, you know, it's not a, somebody it's not a grand somebody ethical statement. That, right? Yeah. Yeah, I, yeah. And, and, and the, you... No, no, please. So you, you have a bit in your essay... Um, so, so you you relate this to these kind of discussions about blackness right as an idea um and you men, mentioned barbara smith who coined the much misunderstood term identity politics smith's great insight was that a politics centered on our experiences as members of shunted aside groups as blacks as women as lesbians and so on can refine our notions of freedom first for ourselves and then crucially for others as well and and then you have this nod towards um uh late tanzanian president and anti-colonialist julius mire um yeah yeah, yeah, all right (laughs) um could could you talk about that that turn in your essay and why fratelli tutti led you to him and to barbersman
2: well you know i in some ways this was my own exercise in uh accepting my sort of contingent uh closest at hand metaphor for this idea. What what I'm really interested in is is, uh, in identity formation and whatever we call identity politics and how, um, yes, it's misconstrual of late um, and also how these things ourselves, our lives, our experiences um, are in the end um, tools toward whatever we call freedom, toward this kind of transcendence, toward this notion of the sublime. Um, Barbara Smith and the um, famous, um, and, and her, the, the, the Combahee River collect, Collective, of which she was a part and sort of a, a founding member, when you read the the, the documents, uh, including the Combahee River Collective statement, um, in which this term identity politics is really first cemented as a, as a term of art, Um, it's not saying that we should all cluster in our own interest groups, um, and fight for ourselves in a self-interested way. No, it's saying that, um, once the, the deeper you go into your own experiences, um, the, the more that you in fact unravel the sources of your unfreedom because unfreedom is something that reaches us in our real lives. It's not an abstraction. It has, it ramifies downward and toward, in terms of whatever, the bill I can't pay, the violence in my neighborhood that I can't explain all of these things, right? Um, and that works. So then experience is a kind of investigation. Um, even before the advent of the Combahee River Collective, in this statement, one of the staples of uh, radical feminism was what was called consciousness raising uh there were these consciousness raising groups and people would sit around in a circle and talk about their everyday lives and locate the places in their lives where unfreedom was where they were oppressed whether it was in the context of the home or the family whether it was in the the public arena wherever that talking through experience pulling gleaning things out of our contingencies um could help us learn more about ourselves, but also crucially uh, other people, right? I mean, one way to think about this uh, because it's happening all around us today is like, look at police violence, right? There's often a thing that happens where a black person is killed by the police. Um, And there's like a counter move that says, um, this happens to white people as well. And to me, that's not a counter. It's like, aha, good. This thing that's happening to black people has helped to uncover something that is much bigger than black people. It will never, um, in my opinion, that this issue will never subside until we are able to slowly and surely point to its broadest and most universal applications. Um, Yes, there's a usually poor white guy who also is choked out to death by the police. And, but the politics the the particular politics of Black struggle that have developed over the past century and a half have helped clarify the meaning of this other thing, right? That we, uh, this this plummet, this sort of incarnational move into the specific helps us to universalize the circle of our concern, right? And so Julius Nereri does something very similar um, as he is putting out his program for a socialism that is not reflexively... Um, And you see other people like this, you know, Kwame Ture, formerly Stokely Carmichael talking about, no, 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 socialism is not a purely Eurocentric notion that we need to, as Black people or as people from um, the, you know, so-called broadly construed third world, reflexively dismiss because of its origins. This is something that is uh, true in some way in all of our contexts and helps us to understand our context better. Um, And so Nyerere does this very interesting thing, which is Okay, what is the basis of African socialism, right? And so he goes down into the the context and the history again. This movement through time don't just be bracketed in your in your moment. Our ancestors, people to whom we can relate, um, didn't let their brothers and sisters go hungry, right? And so finding this thing that you know is on some level universal, whatever it. it practiced and theorized around the world but having to on um, the wisdom in that of rooting it again in the contingent helping to unlock a new face of it almost like you know when uh, anybody who's you know studies phenomenology right looking at a different aspect of it and then therefore learning something new or seeing a new profile of this thing um seeing something new and revelatory that you can sort of bring to the rest you know when i when i was a kid you and notes in class can you show that to the rest of the class you you have this something that's secret that then becomes something that you can enrich the knowledge of the whole with um and so those for me were interesting interesting parallels i, I thought
0: yeah. yeah you know it's it, it's it's funny you mentioned that because i had uh, uh I met with a marine this is when the sort of colin kaepernick thing was going on right and he was still in this gunny white guy and um had never been particularly political right uh in any particular way just you know really motivated with the marine corps and um uh, i met up with him at like a nepalese pace in queens and um and asked him you know what he thought about the the colin kaepernick kneeling thing and he and uh he said actually i've been very involved in police reform stuff ever since my wife's white grandfather was killed by the cops, right? Um, you know, and he's like, he's doing wrong, he was drunk driving, and they they tased like a 70 or 80-year-old man, and then his heart gave them, right? Um, utterly unnecessarily. And um and then that was a you know, that was a route for him to to better understand the issue for. <laughs> You know out of this you know particular tragedy but then also understanding how it affects different communities differently right yeah. um uh yeah and,
2: and what happens there is you know there are angles from which something like that can seem totally um contextless it can seem in some way meaningless it's like that happened what do i make of it right right um, good politics i think offers not something fake or, or or glommed on or tendentious but says um coming from another place helped, like there's a history behind why that happened and although it has again specifics it 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 has now entered your life too and so uh and the, the next move is like so join me you know right and that to me is the um the move of a healthy politics and also the move of a healthy, um, healthy notion of identity. Um, you know I, what's what really interesting interested me about Fratelli Tutti is that, and I think some, actually mostly traditionalists, uh, picked up on this, but in a, a negative way. Um, <laughs> it, it very cannily uses the language of small l liberalism, right? You see a lot of mm-hmm. liberal equality fraternity, right? It's like using the language of the French Revolution, but from beneath, filling those things up with a sort of moral and intellectual valence that makes them meaningful, right? Freedom, freedom from what, and freedom to do what? Fraternity with who and on what basis, you know? Yeah,
0: and it's a sort of what grounded uh, historical community. Right. Yeah. Some it's, it's a it's- very interesting
1: observation, though, because I noticed that as I was reading it, the use of the, uh, liberal terminology and the kind of, uh, liberal taxonomy of, of, uh, of rights and and freedom. But, and I could tell that he was doing something with, but that's, uh, no, that's very interesting that it's being filled up from the bottom in that way. I didn't, I wouldn't have appreciated that that was deliberate, but, uh, but yeah, I can see that. Um, Listen. The the thing with the, the good politics and and uh, what constitutes a good politics and as it relates to police violence um, and the ability to take uh, to take experiences that might be remote to some people and make them accessible and make them the basis for uh, um, an actual political movement is. I wonder in the listening to this conversation, to what extent the theological underpinning um, or a, a, a religious approach that requires some degree of commitment to both the universal and the particular, mm-hmm. um, if maybe it's not inseparable from that kind of good politics. I mean, clearly it's not right. We can all think of examples where people have constructed good uh you know what we would consider salutary political movements that weren't explicitly religious but it seems to me it's gotten much harder to do that because there are powerful secular currents uh pushing against that i think i think that the they're both the currents the the pope uh names in this and there are others that are more local um to us and that the ability to recognize um as a first principle the need to balance the particular and the universal in these things is maybe we're taking it for granted in this conversation but i don't think that it's um i don't think it's broadly taken for granted you know and i think that goes in both directions i should say right like i don't think that it's just that people are you know i don't think it's uh it's only uh, one trespass against that, that like it's only the profusion of identity politics that's intensely parochial or nativist or whatever. It's the, it's both are happening at the same time. It's pulling in both directions at the same time. There's like a hyper universalism and a hyper parochialism that are happening at the same time. And uh, I don't know exactly what it is. Um, about this moment. I mean, I could speculate, I have my ideas, but I I do feel that. And so the this attempt to, if not reconcile the two, then at least as to come back to what Vincent was saying before, like the need to hold them in tension, the recognition that there has to be a kind of deliberate, willful, um, attempt to hold them in tension is, it's not just that it's difficult because it's always difficult in all times and in all places, it's difficult. It's that it's, um, you know, it's, it's like explicitly unpopular in some ways at the moment.
0: Yeah. And, and I mean, Francis comes flat out and says he thinks this needs to be undergirded by faith. Right. I mean, um, and, you know, but, but of course the, the, it's not necessarily the case that the role of institutional, uh, religious organizations have, have always been helpful or, or, uh, kind of religious actors in the public sphere. And I was reading a, an interview that Brian Stevenson did with, uh, Christians for social action. And he was talking about, um, the sort of pushback to the work that, that he does. Um, uh, Brian Stevenson being the founder of the equal, equal justice initiative. Um, uh, uh, you know, he spent his life uh, advocating for for people caught up in the criminal justice system uh, and people on death row. Um, and he wrote about this pushback that he's received from uh, churches, right, in, in the American South. And he says, they don't want Christians and people of faith thinking about how to love, how to restore, how to serve, how to respond to the suffering of those without. They want them angry. They want them angry about Hollywood and angry about people who are gay and angry about liberals and angry about taxes. They want them fearful of crime and fearful of terrorism and fearful of all these threats. And then yields social and political uh, policies that are very predictable. What that will give you is a desire for the death penalty, support for mass incarceration, resistance to social justice, indifference to the poor, contempt for those who are disadvantaged and marginalized. This explains how we can be so saturated with churches and religious institutions and yet so silent on social justice issues and so lax in doing the things Jesus called us to do. It,
2: to, to both of your points, it's very, that is very apt of uh, Brian Stevenson and um, And unfortunately, to, to his point and both of your points, it, it, there's no denominational affiliation, no creed that will help to bracket that uh, problem out of existence. It's one of the I mean I guess it's always been that way because we can see more now, um, it has become one of the horrors of my life trying to think that everything at the end boils down to this sort of you can look at the same text and you know splinter off in a million directions with uh, its uh, its meaning but it, and so it, it becomes like a, it is a doomed it is kind of a not doomed to failure but it I think you have to have, um, I'm, I'm glad Camus came up. You have to have a kind of absurdist. I think it takes a kind of existentialism to, 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 to as Francis does, you know, um, begin this letter off. And part of this has to do with literary style. And you might think about it as an um, argumentative style too. It's like, this is one of now several uh, papal encyclicals that starts off with an, uh, an address to all people of goodwill not just Catholics, not just, you know, in yeah. some ways it's trying to, it's, it's a tactical move, right? Because if he could count on all Catholics to take this message as he means it, he would just say all Catholics. That's a lot, that's a couple billion people. It would be helpful. He's like, you know what? I'm going to broaden the net and maybe I'll pick off Jake Siegel and maybe I'll pick off somebody. It's like <laughs> all people of goodwill, here's what I have to say, right? Um, and so, and, but I think he understands that that is a straining move and that there are people who are going to fall that mess.
1: straining like uh, the traditionalists will hold that against
2: them. Well, yeah, well first of all, the tra- traditionalists have never liked to all people of
1: goodwill, it has, right, very, really. it
2: has a very vexed, um, yeah, right. The very first person to say all people of goodwill in a papal encyclical is John the 23rd in his encyclical Pacem and Terrace, which is you can kind of think about this as uh, the this. For teletuti as the result of the failure of the hope that happens in
1: Parchman Terrace. I'm sorry. Now I'm fascinated. You have to very briefly tell me when that, like roughly,
2: Parchman Terrace is 1963, I believe, and uh, John the 23rd is saying. Um, and part of this, interestingly, to to go back to the language of the French Revolution, part of this is the lasting interest in the popes of the like the more modern popes in Things like the United Nations, the European Union, mm-hmm. international politics, right? Right. So uh, right. it says, look, freedoms are coming; they're zooming towards us. It, it, and he says things like, "It's very clear that in a matter of several years, nobody's going to be like totally unfree. No, no, no country is going to be uh, subject to. This is also like a moment of decolonization, of course. No country is going to be subject to another country. No person, by by dint of their uh, gender or their race or whatever is going to be considered a second-class citizen um, And so what he's trying to do actually is define What the the phrase peace on earth will mean under those conditions again saying we all know it's coming So here's what toward what good that new condition of freedom should adduce, right? And and Francis, it's so interesting using the same address to all people of goodwill is saying uh, None of that happened. Sorry
1: <laughs> <laughs> or it all happened, but you, you didn't like the results. You got all of it. Yeah. yeah.
2: It happened where it happened. It happened in a deleterious way. Right. right. In the world, it didn't happen. Right. right? So how do, right. We, how do we close that gap, right? Um. And so the relationship between those two documents is something. But anyway, traditionalists don't like this because mm. people are supposed to talk to their subjects and mm whatever to all the bishops or whatever you know and mm. this this move you know has the foul whiff of et- 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 ecumenism and Freemasonry uh, and everything else right
0: uh, well, well you know he also right. says in this that authentic reconciliation does not flee from conflict but is achieved in conflict so <laughs> yeah. so we 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 really need to get on to to fairview because i think we're gonna have a lot to say about that as well you gonna be kidding um, me
1: <laughs> we're done with it we just got started i know okay I know, fairview. I know.
0: Okay. Um, we only have. I mean, we could have. We could. We could have done this for, for hours. But we don't have that that, that much time. I should also note that if, if people have questions or anything they want to want to say to us, they can they can send those in in on the chat, uh, and they'll get them to us, and I can I can read them. Uh, filled, know, what's them.
1: Uh, what was the title of Vincent's essay in Commonweal? So people many can in them?
0: Yeah, many in one on uh, yeah Commonweal. It's up on their website. Uh, definitely check it out. It's very much worth reading. Um, so. Uh, the uh, maybe we can incorporate what, how to how to deal with this practically in the real world as a part of our our discussion with Fair, Fairview. Um, uh, you picked Vincent. You picked this play to pair with Fratelli Tutti. I wondered if you, you just sort of describe the play to us. Um, we've read it. You're the one who's actually seen it, and mm-hmm. and talk about why you picked this to to pair with uh, with Pope Francis's encyclical.
2: Sure, um, just to be descriptive briefly, Fairview is a play by the wonderful Jackie Sibley's jury. She's one of my um, favorite playwrights of the moment. Um, all of her plays move sort of like contraptions. They're all meta theatrical in that they are happening and at the same time they are comments on what it means for something to happen uh, on a stage. And they're very uh, aware of the conventions of the theater and uh, sort of eager to use those conventions in order to um, make larger um, social critiques and comments and things like this. Um, so Fairview begins, it's a very, you know, a, speaking of conventions of the theater, it's a very tightly construed three-act play. It begins with a what looks like a very normal Black American, family these could be these are sort of a a take on the huxtables if you want um there's a there's a wife who is uh wife and a husband and the wife is stressed out because she is trying to make her mother's birthday perfect um there is preparation of food there is setting of tables purchasing of wine um all these things Uh, the tension in this scene, based on what we don't know about this absent grandmother, um, and you know her, everybody's attempt to please her tension ratchets up. The, the the wife's sister comes over, the daughter comes home from basketball practice and is wants to take a gap year from college, which is like not something that the mother wants to hear. Um, and it ends in a moment of great stress. The 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 wife uh, sort of passes out. Um, the second that is just sort of, it seems like we're in a very conventional family play. Um, it's a sitcom feel, right? Sitcomy feel, which, you know, if you if you know Jackie uh, Sibley's jury's work, you're just waiting for her to mess it up. Like, this is, you know, um, but it also, but it brings in themes which will be important later on. Talks mm-hmm. about other people, how they see others and and... Mm-hmm. Shouldn't walk into a room without saying hello or you're just looking at someone lots of different things that will be thematized later on um and when i saw it at um i should say at the Polanski uh, shakespeare theater in brooklyn it's a very beautiful like sort of um uh, there's a sort of staircase up to the grandmother's room all everything is white um very sort of um only slightly stylized american two-story home the second act is the weirdest, one of the weirdest things I've ever seen in the theater. Um, you see the same action, except now it's happening wordlessly and everybody just moving around as if choreographed. And you see, by the way, how well choreographed the blocking of that first sitcom scene was, how stylized the motions in it. It's happening wordlessly and the people are just moving around the stage in the same way that you've just seen. And over them are Four speakers that we cannot see. And they're talking about matters of race. You can tell that they're all white. One of them is European. And the issue of, like, what does ethnicity in Europe mean vis a vis race as construed in America is one of the things that comes up. But it's all about they're sort of imagining hey, well, if you could be another race, what would you be? And, and this turns into a sort of comedy of 21st century manners of one woman. Um, is saying that the, other, the answers of the other people is problematic and the other people are are sort of uh, bucking against this judgment of their values. You know, one wants to be Latinx, one wants to be Asian, one wants to be something else, right? Um, and the one person who doesn't like this game comes out and says that she would want to be African-American because she had an African-American maid when she was growing up. So it's a mess, right? It's a, it's a racial mess of the kind that makes everybody who would be watching this cringe to death. And by the end of the second season, uh, scene, though, it becomes clear that the people that we can hear but not see are watching the drama that we've just seen in the first act. Now they start to interact with it and say, look at her. See, now she's the kind of Black woman I would want to be. And all of a sudden you understand that this is in some ways a drama of watching and of being watch- watched, of seeing and being seen. And the, the one person who in the first scene has been able to give a monologue the daughter of the family, Keisha, you see this. You see a kind of growing agitation of her, even in this silent kind of minuet that the family is going through. Um, and by the end, the, the second act kind of moves past the the fainting and gives you some more information. In the third act, uh, which I don't want to totally ruin for anybody, but is really interesting, the people who have been that we've been hearing their conversation now they start to show up in the play. So one of them is comes in sort of it, funny that we we're talking about the incarnation, but they sort of incarnate themselves into this play. Um, one woman is, is now the grandmother. She appears as the grandmother and another one of the men that we've been uh, listening to comes in as the brother who was supposed to, you know, this absent brother was supposed to be a sort of respectable lawyer type. As we understood him in the first act. Now he's like basically DMX, you know, this guy has like, this is my black. Act. So that now these, these white actors have come into this sort of middle-class black drama and turned it into something else that resides in their own racial imagination. Everything blows up. It it, it basically turns into a riot on the stage. And I'm not uh, spoiling anybody by saying that the show ends with Keisha, the young girl who's been able to give these uh, these, monologues, these soliloquies which in, in the stage directions uh jackie very funny humorously which is when somebody can talk without other people here you know she's very about the convention the theater um makes an appeal to the audience for all the white uh audience members to come up on stage and then she gives a final uh final monologue out in the seats um which you know one night that I saw it, the first night that I saw this, she delivered the last few lines to my wife while I was sitting there. And it was one of the only times that I've cried in the theater, like audibly. It was very moving to me for reasons that I guess we can get into. But that is my perhaps overlong summary of this play.
1: No, that's good because the play does require uh, to talk about it, you know, in this way definitely requires some setup contraption is a great word for it because it has these interlocking parts that only make sense in relation to each other. And, um, that are, that, you know, it's the, the, there's the internal tension generated by the parts in the play. And then there's the implicit or I guess latent, Added energy of you, the audience member, or in my case, even as the reader, it's still, I mean, right. to some extent, it still works as the reader. You recognize yourself altering the the generative the energy and, and meaning of the play in the process of reading it. And um,
0: yeah, it's. It, it's and, and, and it's got to be, you know, we're talking about the, the local and the specific too, and, and it's got to be a. a, a like being in theater, I mean I saw another play that the, that the theater director had um, uh, Sarah Benson had worked on, uh, Brandon Jacobs Jenkins and Octoroon. Mm-hmm. And there was this there was a sort of similar thing where there's kind of like racial humor that um, like the audience would laugh at, feeling comfortable with it and then it like veers into places where there's like there's like a line. Some audience members are still laughing and some are cringing and then everybody's cringing. and you sort of all of a sudden you become aware of yourself as an audience member and the other audience members around you in your relationship to what's happening. So you, as the audience member um, and the dynamic, the sort of unique dynamic of you sitting in your seats becomes a part of the play. And it feels like, even though I know, haven't seen this stage, that she pushes that even even harder. Absolutely.
2: Um, every move in the play, starting with the and then with these voices and then this sort of invasion of the stage and then this total reversal of audience and cast and playwright. Um, every move f- brings you, the audience member, into a more heightened awareness of your status in that place, you know. Um it's it's very you know this is always the this is one question with the theater is how strictly it keeps the the fiction of the proscenium, you know how 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 porous is that border um, and uh great speeches do this I teach a class uh one one of the classes I speech uh, classes I teach is about how the American essay is a product of the sermon, which is all about defining the borders of the congregation right um to take the boat metaphor again what boat are you in um and to whom is this um this thing directed and um yeah this is a play that knows the sensitivities and the fears of its audience and it is not and, and in some ways is aimed dead dead at those fears and
1: at sort of bringing them to a a, 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 oh. a but this is a convention of modern theater, right? Like, So the acknowledgement of the porousness and then the kind of um, I don't know what you want to call it the, the uh, meta construction of the porousness between uh, theatrical presentation and audience then becoming an element of the drama. I don't want to lecture to a theater critic don't get me wrong but as I, as I understand it is a and from you know, some of what I've seen, is uh, almost a cliche of, of modern, postmodern, I guess, rather than modernist theater. But it is certainly not original here. I mean, it seems to me that what she's doing is taking that and warping it and making it, uh, you know, disorienting and absurd and and then reintroducing the question of the audience's relation to the drama. Like there's something, um, it, you know, it's, it's, you're not sure who the audience is for a while, especially in the second act. So in the first act, you're pretty sure you're the audience, right? There's a, a fairly conventional family drama playing out. It's got the huxtable quality, but there's something pitched a little bit It's pitched up, just, you know, you're aware of the fact that like, nah, you know, the Huxtables would be more natural around each other. This has a a heightened quality. But then in the second act, you don't know where you are. And and I should say, I read this, so I didn't, I am now imagining it the way Vince described it. But even reading it, you're disoriented by it you know, and you're like, you're laughing at these people who are having this conversation their imaginary uh, what race would I want to be conversation, and it's funny, but like they're clearly witnessing something, especially as the second act proceeds, they're witnessing something, you're witnessing them. So, one of the things it does, I thought, very cannily was it takes this convention of, you know, the kind of awareness of the the constructive nature of the narrative and the porous border. And it, it manages to get you lost in that. Like you you know that it's playing with the border and yet you're lost somewhere on the border and you're trying to get your footing. And then I don't, by the third act, I still didn't have my footing for a while. You know, it takes. So the, that I thought was, um, it was effective and it was, um, you know, it's probably difficult to make that potent given that as a savvy modern theatergoer or reader, you feel like you have some awareness of what's going on. You understand you're being played with in some way, and yet here still, because you don't know where you stand in relation to these characters, you know, the effect is, is still potent.
2: Yeah. Part of that is that each change is very, as you say, disorienting at the beginning and then it sort of comes into focus and you understand where you are. Um, but the other thing though, is like, I think you're like that in some ways this, you know, this interaction is a commonplace of a certain kind of theater. In the end though, this play turns that back into the sort of, almost into a kind of traditionalism because it is still about the, it's still about the character and it's, it's really investigating one of the first things about theater, which is what is, what is the character? Who is the, and what does it mean to be under display as some kind of simulacrum of yourself? Overlaying that over the concerns of, you know, identity. What, what does it mean to be black or be anything else? Can you, does it make sense to be anything if that thing cannot be Put on stage if that thing can't be ultimately um digested by someone else this is my you know to go back to this thing about a, a, of the folly of hyper universalism this is why my impatience with people who say let's just let's just if we all decide to stop using the language of race it's like no 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 because this has to do with the way we see one another and the, the relational aspect of our lives together won't allow that to happen we have to synthesize. We can't just cut something off, you know. Um,
1: Yeah. Yeah, And also, good. Well, I was just going to say, like, you know, blackness is so much part of the fantasy life and the uh, like the the psychic imagination of the American experience that, you know, the suggestion that you could eradicate it, it's not just a question of eradicating it from the language. History will deal with this as it may. Like, who knows how this will look in 50 years? I think it'll probably look quite different, actually. But this is something I've thought about myself. Um, You know, like the, the whiteness and blackness in relation to each other are, this is not just like a, an object in the landscape that you can alter. This is something people have deeply internalized, like the fascination with blackness, the fear of blackness is essential to the American experience. And this is, you know, it's, it's treated initially sort of playfully in the second act and like this, if you could be any race, what would you be? You know, but one of the things that
0: with um. But, like, I'd be Asian, but I wouldn't but be, just to like, finish but I'd thought. be a rebellious Asian. But right? one of the like, things that's yeah. interesting
1: about that, like, for me, and I would bet you that this is true of a lot of uh, theater goers, is that, first of all, you're, like, Asian. Like, I assumed it was going to go to black right away, right? Like, right. so there's something, even in the Asian, even in the, the Latinx, where you're, like, you still understand that that's a deliberate deviation in some sense from what's supposed to be the the like fundamental bichromatic makeup of it right like so to say Asian is well I'm going to distinguish myself but you know that that Asianianness is still referenced it's still like chosen in reference to white black in some sense or the black specifically in some sense yeah
0: you know there's one of the things that that the play does, so, so when, you know, when the, the teenager, like, addresses the audience, right, yeah. she makes this sort of, this kind of plea, because, you know, you've come here, you start out with this story of a family, but it gets interrupted by this kind of, like, insane racial imaginary that just kind of, like, destroys everything. And, and, and actually, the, in that part, um, I thought of, there's, there's a line that D.H. Lawrence said about Poe in his, um, uh, in his essays on American literature. We said, Moralists have always wondered helplessly why Poe's morbid tales need to have been written. They need to be written because old things need to die and disintegrate because the old white psyche has to be gradually broken down before anything else has come to pass. And that has, no, what Poe's doing, has nothing to do with, with what's happening here, but there's sort of like, it brings it to this fever pitch um we're almost like with a sort of kind of american racial imaginary takes over the action of the play right um and in a way it's sort of like um you know like starts no exit is like hell is other people this is like hell is a sort of racialized gaze right that is kind of projecting itself upon you kind of constantly right um and then the, the, the teenager, Keisha, sort of addresses the audience, and she says, you know, um, uh, I need to ask you to leave so I can have some space to think. I know what you're going to say because you have told me every story I've ever heard, and I need you to listen, right? And she wants to demand a space where she can be alone with all my people of color, all my colorful people. And if I were to go out down here with my colorful people, could I tell us a story? I can't think in the face of you telling me who you think I am with your loud self and your loud eyes and your loud guilt. Um, And that is the moment not, you know, we don't actually have a a real rich sense of her as a character, right? But it's like that sort of moment of breaking through. We don't know what's going to happen. Right. Um. <sighs> why this particular play with Fratellituti? You know mm-hmm. what? What does what does that sort of? I mean, in some ways is demand for freedom, right? It's a. De- it's a demand for freedom
2: of a kind. I don't think, Mm -hmm. you know, one of the things that we get caught up in, everything that we've said, you know, about the depth and the intractability of the psychological condition of race, the, the way it resides in all of our thinking and our mannerisms and our sort of deepest places, is all true, and I don't think, though, that this indulges the fantasy that um, the the way through that is to unravel those psychologies one by one. We'll mm-hmm. right? be waiting forever if that is the answer, right? Yeah. Right. But, but, um, what's interesting to me about this, like, to a story, which is the part to me that just, you know, first of all, again, first of all, again, goes right back to the as I said, the first moves of theater, what is it but an attempt to do that? Um, And because theater, as we, you know, it's almost the cliche uh, because of its associations with Greece and with with antiquity, that it sort of first bloomed under democracy. We sort of think about that attempt to tell a story as in fact an attempt to tell the story of a people, right? The Mm -hmm. attempt to use the voice of a demos to Define itself and define how it will move through history when Francis talks about a people who as we've mentioned, right? Create this third category category—a people that moves through history together with a certain trajectory um, mythically right not Not sort of uh, I Don't know it's some sort of false spiritualization, but mythically that that myth making involves the creation of a people through a kind of storytelling, right? An awareness of history and a sort of a horizon for the future that can only be happen, happen if you like have the space, the mental space, the ultimately artistic and creative space to um, tell a story. Um, and so I just thought, thought you know, I, I think that those, that impulse, um, which I, I truly believe that all people have um, is a sort of so artfully problematized in this play, but is, I think, at the, the root of Francis's political vision um, mm-hmm. as well. So um, I just feel this correspondence, you know. Um, Francis is, um, part of Francis's deal is that he's formed by, you know, his his youth and the, the politics mm-hmm. of youth, which is, you know, largely Peronist and, Juan Perón was amazing at telling stories about, um, you know, the patria, what the, what the, what the people was, um, and where it had been, and where it could go. Um, And so, in the Argentina of Francis's youth, there's, um, as, you know, liberation theology is coming into being, um, another sort of offshoot of this is what's called the theology of the people and it's all about this is why francis is so interested in like no we don't we're not going to stop folk festivals no we're not going to stop people from having their parades and their individual devotions to the to the virgin right because you deny people the access to any kind of transcendence if you um because of an over emphasis on orthodoxy or something like this deny them their folk traditions right the the, the the entire mythology that has been the container for this transcendent uh object of belief um, and so what what does it mean then you know in some ways what he warns against the the denial of a of an origin origin story an originary myth is the subject of fairview right what what does it mean to try to right back from one and tell the story again, that sort of another right. attempt that happens in that final monologue, you know, is in some ways, it's like an end and a beginning. It's like, okay, how could I How could I tell it? Um, given all this history, given all this psychosis, all of this, you know, malfeasance, everything, how could I tell the story again? It's very, that's um, it, immeasurably moving to me. Yeah.
1: Can I read a, a bit here? This is from the second act. Um, and I'm sorry, I forget uh, the, the character names in the second act. I forget who this is, but it's uh, the person who wants to become Latinx. And they say, this is when the, the question is first posed, what race would you be? Say, it, it's interesting, you know, like if I was going to like become a different race and I could just choose that, it would be like, I mean, based on what criteria, you know. Like if I just think about like would I want to choose a race that is more like who I actually am to express something essential about myself or would I want to choose a race that is totally different from who I actually am to like try something new. I feel like I would want to try something that expresses more of who I am. Maybe. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. If I could choose to be a different race, I'd want to be Latinx. And this to me is, um, you know, sort of like, brilliant and caustic as um, a a send-up and, uh, you know, I think an artful one of this use of race and uh, racial identity as like a fulfillment of the individual identity right like so this is not racial essentialism in the sense of immutable characteristics have been forced on you by the race you were born into this is like there are these archetypal races out there and one of those races is going to express who i truly am you know like and I don't think it's an accident here that the race this person wants to be is Latinx, which is a like recently constructed race with no actual popularity among the people whom it purports to represent. I mean, that doesn't strike me as incidental here. But even beyond the the particular of the, the Latinx thing, it's like there's well, also something- a good
0: number of people, you know, like my wife identifies as Colombian, right? There's like, you know, families from Medellin. Um, there is a particular set of cultural... There's a history, right? There's history and narrative um, and community. Of people and, who move through and ba- history. Of people, right? But yeah, who move through history that is associated with that, that is, you know, specific, right? And yeah, that's a, that's a good point about about the choice of, of Latinx specifically. Right? And and also it's also a sort the- of nod to their, like, they're playing this game, but it's like they're yeah, yeah, trying right. to put they're, themselves as, right. like they're progressive, right? No, um, but there's but, a, a game yeah. that they're playing that yeah. they
1: think that they're in on, even though they're not fully in on it. But right. um, this idea of like, what race expresses how I really feel inside? Um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, we, it, race
2: as consumer good. Right. Yeah,
1: race is good. Identity is a consumer good, right? Yeah. Like racial identity as a, uh, like a, 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 you know, this is to, to come back to fratellitude, to the, like this all conquering market force um, individualism as, you know, endless consumer choice thing. Except that in this case, the consumer choice relates to something that is both in its appeal as a consumer good, suggesting some kind of, uh, you know, almost metaphysical quality while at the same time reifying, uh, you know, an actual system of social relations in which some people are privileged by the purchase of those consumer goods and other people are exploited by the purchase of those consumers you know okay.
0: so so it's a game uh but a game with consequences we have we have one listener question i think we're, we're gonna have to uh it's luma Sims, right? hey luma thanks for <laughs> for coming in um uh, and then we're probably gonna have to wrap because we we are over time uh, and this is for uh, vincent uh, uh who's more interesting than you or me jake so um mm, I agree. Uh, and she, she talks about this sort of sense of kind of black identity it's so a local grounded identity and you know uh human identities or sort of humanism is this universal thing. It seems to me that black people, right. Are establishing and reclaiming their identity and then are being told you're human, like everyone else, get over yourself. Right. Um, and so there's a sense in which the kind of universal, you know, idea of like humanness is being set contra to black identity. Um, and how you see holding, holding that tension and understanding yourself, In that phrase, where the sort of universal is held, yeah, you know,
2: um, the first thing I guess I should say about that, just intellectually, is that to me there is not, nor should there be, any contradistinction, you know, black and human or anything and human, because again, to be human, one thing about being a human being, one of the great joys of humanity, is the human being's tendency to get deeply enmeshed and embedded in a context that is part of what it means to be a human i was reading a piece in the guardian the other day i don't know if anybody's seen this it's one of their like experience pieces where they like it's kind of an as told to thing and it was like this guy who's a farmer um he's from wales and he's just like i've had the same dinner for 10 years it's all about how he loves his place he's only left This farm one time and he like he's like i've heard that london is a place best avoided um and uh you know there's a way for many of us in our context to like look at that and find it weird but it by the end of it it just felt like the most natural thing in the world and i and there is something inescapably human about that to love home to um feel affinity with you know with not just other people around you, but with a place as France, as, you know, as, as Francis's great model, St. Francis does to love this tree and that hill and that star. Um, so number one, my commitments always tell me that my, my life within a community is the great sign of my, um, but also, you know, one thing that I've learned, and I don't know, like this is, a great, to me, marker of identity, or one of the things that adduces to identity, or how we relate to it, is whether what the sort of community looked like that you were born into. And I was, you know, I I, I was born into, I was born in New York and like a mostly black context. Everybody I knew was a working class black person. I moved to Chicago when I was a kid, and my dad was a musician. We went to an all black church. I went to mostly black. Catholic schools, the only white people I knew were priests and nuns. Um, And so, again, in that context, humanity, the humans I knew were black people, you know? (laughs) So I've never, I I feel very lucky in that regard. You know, the first time I went to a school that was mostly white was when I was in eighth grade. And so, you know, I was, you know, learning to accept these other humans, but to me, this is, you know, um, and, and I've always carried that sort of, My blackness and my humanity are are equally they're equally yoked in my life um, and that helps me though as I was talking about with identity politics understand the and appreciate and learn to love the sort of various humanities of the other people I meet so I want to be a I want to be black and I want to be a humanist and, I, and I, I, these are sort of what I've kind of always tried to be yeah you
1: know? amen. That's so what's so gross about some of the, um, like the, I don't know, I, I don't say all the classical liberal type people, but um, I am thinking about um, Dawkins just got his like humanist award revoked by some organization, you know, for I don't know he said something or another, but, you know, like the, uh, the, the, they're developed, I think, in a certain kind of political culture, a, uh, a real kind of sneering antipathy towards uh, particularism that was fundamentally, you know, I always thought of as being, though it purported to be humanistic, it purported to be a kind of elevated universalism. It's like deeply, profoundly anti-human. Um,
0: yeah. And ultimately very parochial,
1: right? So the, it, it yeah. extraordinarily and boring. Extraordinarily parochial. <laughs> boring, uninteresting, incapable of generating real culture. Um yeah. like Charles Mingus, whose birthday it is today. You know, happy right. birthday, Charlie Mingus.
0: Amen. Happy birthday. All right. I I I feel like we could we could chat for a long time about this. This has been a real, real pleasure. Um so thank fun. you. Thank you, Vincent. Thank you, Jake. Um, Yeah.
1: Vincent, fantastic. Thank you. And uh, thanks to everybody who has attended or listened. And thank you to Fairview.
2: Been a real
1: pleasure.